Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Bite.com. Bite clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week we devote ourselves to just one story and acknowledge a sad anniversary and a story that is far from complete. The disappearance in March 2014 of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370, somewhere in the Indian Ocean. It prompted one of the most expensive and extensive searches in history and today that mystery is nowhere close to being solved. Of course, almost immediately there was a wave and still is, a small parade if you will, of conspiracy theories most of which have been easily debunked. But then there are the other theories, rich in fact, that can neither be disproved or proved. And that is what both frustrates and fascinates me as a journalist, that it has taken more than eight years, with extremely little to go on, to support any one theory at all. So on this episode, I've convened a special panel, if you will, of stellar airline accident investigators, commercial airline pilots, and the reporters who not only cover the story, but wrote books on the subject. I'll talk with Christine Negroni, author of The Crash Detectives, then with former National Transportation Safety Board investigator John Golia on a subject he knows a lot about. Then to pilot Patrick Smith. I'll check in with CNN contributor and accident investigator David Susi, author of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, why it disappeared, and how this could happen again. Then we'll shift to Hong Kong, where Florence de Changi lives and worked on the MH370 story. She's the author of a fascinating book, The Disappearing Act. First up, Christine Negroni. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. 
Christine, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I always enjoy being on your show, Peter. Well, let's talk about this because I've been following this for eight years. You've been following this for eight years. Uh, the investigators have been following it certainly that long, although not much has been going on that we know of in the last two years in the investigation. But it still remains one of the great unsolved mysteries along this, alongside of, let's say, Amelia Earhart. Only this one doesn't involve the disappearance of two people. It involves the disappearance of a whole lot more and so many theories that, that have come out of it. And, you know, I've always thought uh, that the answer is going to be not one, but maybe two or three different component parts of this mystery that when you combine them, created a situation in which it was not recoverable and then the plane disappears. That's, you could say that about almost any crash. It's never caused by any one thing. There is a combination. Um, but let's talk about what you were you were thinking about and and yours is is basically a theory about who was at the controls, when they were at the controls, and what affected them. Correct? Yes, that's right. You know, um, it's so funny that when you said, um, I, "I think," I think you said, "I think it's going to be more than one thing," and I think you think that because you understand how aviation accidents happen. So that's exactly correct. No accident is the result of one thing. It's in the in the air safety world in which I operated uh, for quite some time, we would say that every accident is the result of an unbroken chain of events, break any piece, any link in that chain and the accident wouldn't happen. And of course, that happens every day. Um, that the links are broken and airplanes land safely every day. But in the case of Malaysia 370, I think there were many factors that contributed to the accident. And um, to specifically to your question about, you know, who was in command of the aircraft and, and what caused this to happen, the theory that I discuss at great length in my book, The Crash Detectives, really says, yes, there were pilots at the control of this aircraft. Uh, the question is just how much control, how much cognitive function, intellectual function, was at work when they were controlling this aircraft? And uh, the answer to that question, I think, is not much. All right. Let, let, me, stop, let me stop you for a second. Okay. And, and, and let's try to explain who was flying the plane when they took off. You had the pilot who had a number of hours in the air, uh, Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah. You had the first officer, Farik Abdul Hamid. Um, and they were both obviously in the cockpit when the plane took off. Um, and of course, once this disappearance happened, there were all sorts of theories about the fact that uh, uh, the captain had a simulator in his house and was and was simulating the route that he ended up taking to to lose the airplane. They thought it was a suicide. Um, I'm not buying that theory, but we can get to that later. But there's all sorts of controversy about who these gentlemen were, because as you know, we've covered these stories as well, uh, where you know a pilot goes to the bathroom. And then a pilot who wants to commit suicide, we saw that with, 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 uh, with German wings, um, you know, basically locks the door and puts it into an uncontrollable dive and everybody dies. Or the, the rumors that are still circulating about the, the mystery about Egypt Air Flight 990, where the pilot goes to the bathroom and then something happens. In this case, Christine, did the pilot go to the bathroom? Well, I don't know what the pilot did. I theorize that he probably that the captain probably was outside of the cockpit when things started to go haywire on this flight. And the reason I believe that is sh the last 
uh, communication between the airplane and the ground was the captain speaking. He said the now famous Goodnight Malaysia 370 as he was leaving Malaysian airspace and entering into Vietnamese airspace. Now, the fact that the captain made that radio call means that he was not flying the airplane. In any cockpit, as you know, Peter, there's the pilot flying and the pilot monitoring. And the pilot monitoring is the one who talks on the radio and the pilot flying does not. So throughout the flight, we have the um, we have the first officer making the radio calls, but the last radio call comes from the captain, meaning that the captain is flying the aircraft through takeoff, through uh, climb through cruise. And then at this period of time in which the airplane is going to transition from one nation's airspace to another, the captain is now speaking, meaning that he has turned control of the aircraft over to the first officer. So why would he do that? He might do that simply to give the first officer some flying time. That, you know, that's legitimately a good reason. This, this uh, young man was on his last qualifying flight before becoming a a cert certificated uh, pilot on the 777. Uh, he might also, and this is my theory, which I discuss in the book, he might also have turned command of the aircraft over to the first officer because he had to go to the bathroom. He had been in the seat of that aircraft for two hours, more a little more than two hours between prep and flight time. He was a smoker and a coffee drinker and a man in his mid-50s. So all of these, in my knowledge of men at that age, says he probably had to go to the bathroom. You're surmising that the captain handled the radio so that he could turn over controls to the co-pilot and maybe take a break outside the cockpit. That's correct. And so he either went to get a cup of coffee from the flight attendant, stretch his legs, but I think he probably went to the bathroom. And the reason this is critical that he was out of the cockpit is because what I theorize happened in the cockpit probably would have been more successfully managed had there been two heads in the cockpit instead of just one. So the captain is in, let's just go with my theory for a minute. He's in the bathroom. The first officer is flying the airplane. There is nothing challenging about what he has to do. He's done this many times before as a pilot on the 737. This is a promotion to the 777. So there he is and he's flying the airplane and there is is a sudden and rapid decompression of the aircraft. Now that means that something happened so that all that pressurized air that uh, lets us ab be able to breathe freely in the thin air of altitude, that air starts to rush out of the airplane. And when that happens, the air in our bodies also rushes out and there's not sufficient pressure for us to breathe. Why is that important? Because we need oxygen to bring to bring uh, the in the blood to bring uh, health to our brains to let us think, to have cognitive function. And so when this happens, I believe the first officer, as everyone else on the airplane, is all of a sudden having a difficult time breathing. In this case, the, fir the first officer probably put on his oxygen mask, but I believe he also reached over to dial in emergency on the transponder. Now, if you remember this accident, Peter, and I know you do, the transponder turned off. Correct. And we don't know why. But if the first officer reaches over and turns the transponder to standby, uh, to, turns the transponder to the emergency frequency and inadvertently turns it to standby, you're going to lose the transponder. That's, a, that's a, a method of losing the transponder. And there's a reason he might have had a difficult time dialing in the emergency frequency, because one of the first things that happens when your body is suddenly deprived of oxygen is that your extremities begin to tremble. 
So he has not control of his hands. He's trying to do something with the, with the transponder. He's unsuccessful at it. And the transponder turns off. Now he puts on his oxygen mask, or perhaps he had it on before. I can't say, but he has, I know he has, he had to put his oxygen mask on because he starts to do things that make a little bit of sense, not a lot of sense, but a little bit of sense. For one thing, we know based on the radar tracks that he turned the airplane around as if recognizing he had a problem, he was going to take it back to Kuala Lumpur. So the airplane turns around, but then all of a sudden it doesn't, doesn't head toward Kuala Lumpur. It's on a route to Kuala Lumpur and then it diverts and it heads towards the West Coast. And then it heads north towards another airport. And this is an interesting airport he's heading towards now because this is the airport where the first officer learned to fly and it has a very long runway. So I think somewhere in his dim uh, in his dimly illuminated brain, he's trying to solve the problem that he has encountered on this aircraft, but he's not fresh enough to figure it out. He's not fresh enough because he doesn't have enough oxygen. So he has his mask on. And the, the, the other link in this chain in the theory is that he has the mask on, but he's, and he's getting oxygen, but he's not getting sufficient oxygen. So in the case of a depressurization of an aircraft, what we get in the back are those little rubber cups that we put over our face. And frankly, they're not going to do you a lot of good at 32,000 feet because you need the air to be pushed into your lungs. That doesn't happen with those little cups, but it certainly does with the oxygen masks that the pilots have. So not only does he have to have the mask on his face, it needs to be set to 100% oxygen under pressure. If that fails... The first officer might have been getting oxygen enough to keep him conscious, enough to keep him dimly aware of what was going on, but not enough to make him smart enough to handle the emergency. So he flies on this sort of zigzag route, and then all of a sudden the plane turns south and heads without any more pilot input into the South Indian Ocean, where it finally runs out of fuel and crashes into the sea. So that theory all fits with, and I'm going to get to your thing about pilot suicide right here. It all fits with accidents that have happened before. We have seen accidents happen like the one I just described, in which there's a loss of pressurization and the, and the pilots mishandle the accident. There's some precedent for your theory, of course. We had the Payne-Stewart disaster, where basically they, they lost control after depressurization and flew until they ran out of fuel. In fact, on that particular incident, some people may remember, they launched fighter jets to, to maybe shoot it down, and then they just, they just glided back with it as it crashed into the desert. In this situation, you mentioned one that happened in Cyprus. That's right. So, and, and, and in that particular airplane accident, the pilots were unconscious and probably dead by the time the, the flight attendant entered, entered the cockpit. But as he entered the cockpit, there were fighter jets on either side of that airplane, which was a 737. And they saw this young man enter the cockpit and they realized what the situation was. They realized that that was a depressurization event. They tried to indicate that he should follow the airplane, but the plane ran out of fuel and the and it crashed. But my point in talking about the, the one that you mentioned, the Payne Stewart accident, and in this one, and there have been others, all of which I go into in my book, is that there are more cases in which airplanes have crashed because of hypoxia and the incapacitation of the pilot than there are of pilot suicide. So when we look at airplane accidents and what are the causes, precedent is an important component of that. How often has this happened in the, in the past? When have we seen this in the past? So it's 
interesting to me that there's so much focus on this being pilot suicide, pilot suicide slash mass murder, when actually that's not the more common occurrence. These depressurization events are more common than pilot suicide. So that's based on, and there are a number of other reasons why I think this is the more likely scenario, but certainly in in terms of numbers, pilot suicides are exceedingly rare, exceedingly rare. Okay. So now let's take your theory to one step further. Now, where's the plane? We've had the radio wave theory that's come out. Yes. Okay. So now here's the thing. I I have a, I'm a former air accident investigator. I am an aviation journalist. I specialize in safety. I do not, I, I claim no expertise in the subject of underwater recovery. Uh, you know, it does come up from time to time in airplane accidents. And I just sort of look on as all the recovery stuff is happening. But there was a lot of attention paid to trying to find the aircraft in the, in the, in the initial days and weeks and months following the disappearance of the flight. Uh, that's pretty much died down and there are no more searches underway, no government searches. But recently there was a lot of attention paid to one of the citizen investigators, of which there have been many in this particular accident, um, a man by the name of Richard Godfrey, who had a, an interesting idea that you could take a look at the radio waves that are created when people uh communicate with each other on ham radios. Ham radios are something from my childhood, but I think a lot of uh, younger people probably don't remember them. But whatever, it turns out, and this is all new to me, it turns out that these radio, uh, when when there is a conversation between one ham radio operator and another, there's a, a, a frequency, a, like think of it as a thread in the air, that that frequency uh, exists. But when something crosses through that transmission line, uh, it there causes a disturbance, which is trackable. I, I don't know this for a fact. I'm just telling you this is the theory of Richard Godfrey. And he says by going back to the night of the event, March 8th in 2014, and looking at those disturbances, he has come up with a theory for where the airplane is. Now, this made a lot of headlines, as you can imagine. But what's interesting about it, Peter, is he doesn't think the airplane's really very different from where the search was anyway. So I'm not actually sure why this is such a big deal if essentially it's saying that the airplane is kind of where they thought it was all along uh, and they haven't been able to find it. So a lot of news, but I'm not sure how it brings us any closer to finding the aircraft. And one more thing I have to add is that if this plane flew at 38,000 feet until it literally ran out of fuel, it would have started a slow but precarious dive and would have picked up so much speed, it would have taken the plane at that altitude going heading into the ocean way beyond its aerodynamic limits. And that plane would have essentially ripped itself apart before it ever hit the ocean. Well, the, yes, you know, that is, that's true, Peter. And, and, and it's important that you brought that out. I'm glad you did. Because a lot of these theorists who say the pilots were in control and were trying to carefully ditch the airplane on the water and it's intact, blah, blah, blah. It just does not, it just does not gel with the known facts. And, um, and the ATSB, the Australian Transportation Safety Bureau has, um, indicated that it has information to suggest that that plane did come apart before it ever hit the water. So it, you know, parts were spewing off the aircraft. Uh, so we, you know, we, the, the, I think the common perception is it's like, you know, when you were a kid and you used to dive for a quarter in the swimming pool, you know, you could look down and see it. I think people think that there's like an airplane that you can see under the water, but <laughs> obviously, you know, that's not the way, no. the way it worked. So, um, so, yeah, so it, finding this airplane intact, I think, is highly unlikely. I hear you. My thanks to Christine. When there's an airline accident, 
John Goley is my go-to guy. He and I have known each other for 40 years, and we've worked on some of the most tragic and fascinating airline disasters as he searched for the probable cause. And when it comes to the disappearance of MH370, John has a wealth of experience and a few stories to tell. I'm so happy to have you back on the show, John, to talk about such a difficult topic because it's such a frustrating topic. Uh, In your history as an accident investigator and working with the NTSB, uh, is there anything in your experience that even comes close to resembling what the world has been going through for the last eight years trying to solve this mystery? No, this is unique in the annals of aviation for a number of reasons, not the least of which is taken so long uh, to get to this point and we still don't have anything conclusive so it's really it really is very unique in aviation circles i mean in my history you know there's an incident an accident uh the ntsb sets out you know sends out a go team uh you're looking for to rule out anything you possibly can before you can rule out anything at all or rule in anything at all uh, you have metallurgical guys and maintenance guys and engineering guys and human factors guys. You have teams that look at um, tires and maintenance. You have teams that look at fuel, uh, weather, temperature, you name it. Uh, and all those people were players in this case as well. So it's amazing to me that eight years later, we, you know, I, I hate to sound like a bad movie here, but we haven't had something that suddenly cracks the case. I know that we were impatient. We like our, our dramas ending in an hour so we can go to a commercial. This one is not like a television show. This one may may never be solved. But, but you know, when you think about the, the accident cases that you covered, you know, what people don't realize is that the investigation and the report that the NTSB issues on the probable cause can take easily a year, a year and a half to two years to, to complete, right? Under some circumstances, yes, because it's, it's driven by data. All right, so we collect the facts at accident sites. We expand on those facts by digging deeper and, and looking behind every fact to find out uh, the who, what, when, where, and why behind all the pieces in, of the puzzle. And that takes time. It takes a lot of documentation. And then it takes a long time to analyze it. So it's, it really is a very, very intensive uh, investigation. And that I can say that for the United States, and I can say that for Western Europe. Uh, but when we get further away uh, from uh, uh, the Western countries, uh, sometimes those investigations don't take into consideration all that same detail. Right. So and, and in this case, it was really being run by the Australians because it was in their neck of the woods, so to speak. Well, it was really being run by the Malaysians. The Australians were this. Uh, surrogate so it was they were still following the lead and uh, essentially getting permission from the Malaysians to go on on whatever path they were going on because under ICAO the International Civil Aviation Organization which is part of the UN the country that they that owns the airplane is going to lead the investigation where the airplane didn't crash on somebody else's territory I understand So it was out, it was out in the ocean Nobody owns it, so the Malaysians had the, the uh, responsibility for the investigation. They delegated the physical work to the Australians, but the the leadership of the investigation stayed in the control of the Malaysians. 
You know, I remember the, the, the crash in the ocean, by the way, of Air France Flight 447. And when that hit, they had a reasonably good chance of knowing where it was. They had a reasonably good chance, and they used that chance to recover so much of the debris and, of course, the bodies. They, it took them a while. It took them, what, about a year to get the black box, but they got it. And then they were able to put all of those things together, and as you say, John, the data, to create a second-by-second timeline where you could actually look and see not only what didn't happen, but most importantly, what did. In this case, there was no debris field that anybody really found or even came close to finding. We've only seen maybe one or two pieces of of wreckage wash up on the beaches of uh, Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean, parts of of what they call a wing flopper, uh, which they did uh, definitively identify as coming from that plane because of serial numbers. But I think I've just run out of evidence, right? Uh, you have. You have. But it, it doesn't mean that the, that the investigation has stopped. I mean, there are a number of people that have worked on this, both Boeing, both government people, and uh, others. In fact, there's, there's a, a bit of a blue-ha-ha going on down in Australia there's an independent pilots group that has been pushing hard on the Australian government to search uh, uh, the next latitude down. I think we're on 38. They want to go to 39. I might have that backwards. But in any event, they want to move the investigation further south uh, a little bit, a couple of hundred miles, actually. Uh, and they have good reason and good logic to, to uh, try to promote search in that area well, how do, they, well how, do they, how do they know it's there how do they what gives them the indication that it might be there because the the model that was used for the investigation uh, had the pilot dead and there's many indications that the pilot wasn't perished that he was still flying that airplane right to the end and that means that there would be upwards of a 200 mile glide after the engine shut off you wow. know, at the altitude and speed. So that would move them much further south. But none of the government authorities, mainly the Malaysians, want to go there for whatever reason, whatever political reason they have, that they don't want to, to uh, I believe they don't want to find the airplane. Well, I'm going to get to that in a second, but what evidence do they have that suggests this plane was still under human control when it impacted the ocean? Because one of those pieces of debris that you mentioned indicated that the flaps were down in a in a uh, interim position, and he couldn't have flown all that way with all the additional drag on the airplane with the flaps down. So the flaps had to be up for him to get out to where they're looking, and and then when it hit the water, the flaps were down, or at least partially down. So there's an indication. That's the one indication they have that they should be looking further south. Wow. And of, course, and, of course, there's assumptions on how much fuel was put on the airplane. I, I have heard uh, very little about any interviews with the, re- the refuelers. I mean, I worked at the airport long enough to know that the captain came up to me and said, put, put uh, 500 extra gallons aside on the airplane. We would put it on and might not necessarily show up on the fuel slip. Interesting. So, uh, was it, what was the status of the tanks? How much fuel was in the tank? 
you know, I'm sure they did this work, but they've been uh, very closed mouth about it. Crazy. And of course the Australians did stop the search. Who's paying for the search now? Well, supposedly Malaysia is paying for it. And it's some interesting turns. I mean, these folks down in Australia have tracked down uh, major donations from the Saudi Arabian, uh, Saudi Arabia to Malaysia in the, to- in the tune of millions of dollars. Uh, so for what? And we don't know, but they've tracked it down. Uh, Malaysia is paying for it, but supposedly, I don't know how much they reimbursed Australia for the work that they did. Uh, very complicated uh, process. And, and it's not out and, openly and, we would have here in the United States. And what makes it complicated even more is that every party here has an interest to protect. Boeing has an yes. interest to protect. The Malaysians have an interest to protect. Uh, the people who made the engines have an interest to protect. I mean, every component part of that plane is built by somebody who has an interest to protect, and they're all out there saying they want to find the plane. Maybe they don't. You just said it a little bit ago, John. You said maybe they don't want to find the plane, right? Well, I know Boeing put a lot of effort into finding the airplane, both visibly and behind the curtain. And uh, I think that the political side the Australian government and the Malaysian government uh, are the ones that are taking the uh, the path of being uh, not willing to find it. John, what we do know is that at a certain point, about 40 minutes after this plane takes off, after they leave Malaysian airspace and enter, I believe, Vietnamese airspace, the transponder gets turned off. The ACARS gets turned off, which is another communication device that measures telemetry. And then, of course, there's no radio communication. You know, what did you look at in terms of the computers on this plane to see if there's any logical explanation of why all this would be turned off? Well, I, I did my own little digging on this with help from other people, and there was no no single source that have caused all those problems. Plus, they didn't go off simultaneously. They went off one after the other after the other, which clearly indicates some sort of human activity. So there was a speculation that somebody took control of the airplane. Somebody uh, was able to go down below where all the radio gear is below the galley and get in there and, and uh, with some mischief. They'd have to have a lot of knowledge to shut all these systems down from down below. There were, there were all sorts of theories, uh, conspiracy theories and other theories were thrown out. And I was part of a group that looked at virtually all of those in great detail. And there was a flaw with every one of them. Give me, give me an example. So, give me an example of uh, a theory that was, you know, that was raised that you guys were able to say, uh-uh. So the one where they said somebody went down through the hatch there's a hatch in the galley that can, that can give you access to what we call the E&E compartment, electronics compartment, all the radios, all the computers, that's where they live. And they could go down there and turn things off. But the, it's not a little a little area. It's about, it's, it's stand-up height, first off. I've been down there. You can stand up. It's like a room. And it's uh, at least 20 feet long, and it's as wide as the airplane, which is pretty wide. And down there are, the com- uh, are all the computers. But now you look at when they start turning things off. So we, we looked at uh, the first unit that got uh, turned off, so to speak, made not to work, 
And then within seconds, the second unit was turned off. Well, when you're downstairs in that, in that electric compartment, there's about 20 feet that separate those two. So you would have to go like heck to turn one off and then get to the next one to turn it off unless you had a team of people down there. Now it gets even more complicated if you're going to have more than one person down there. And where's the flight crew, the, the flight attendants, and where's the passengers when all this is going on? So it's just, it's just a little bit too far-fetched uh, to have any credence in it. But we did try to run every one of those, those competing theories down. Uh, the one theory that does float best in all the scenarios is the one that supposedly was found on the captain's computer. And that was this track that this airplane flew that supposedly was right on his computer. Yeah, he, he was very active uh, flying his computer, uh, supposedly to make himself more proficient, and I laud him for that. But it appears like this was pre-planned. If, if the rumors uh, are true that that was on his computer and the exact flight plan was on his computer, then it's pretty, pretty clear that he's the one who, who uh, orchestrated this event. So he flew the exact, assuming it's true, that would mean he flew the exact flight plan that was on his simulator. Yes. And it's a rather complicated route that he took because he was dodging those radar stations, the military and the civilian radar stations. So he flew right up the boundary between those countries up the channel until he got out over the open ocean. And then he was free and clear. Well, you know, of course, most people don't realize, most people don't realize that no radar coverage for airplanes only goes a couple hundred miles at best offshore. If you fly from JFK and head due east, uh, at best you're going to be on radar for 200 miles. At best, and that's it. And that's it. So then you're out there and you're invisible until you you get close enough to to England or Ireland, and uh, they start to pick you up. Wow, interesting. So we don't story. have worldwide coverage. Even here in the North Atlantic, we don't have worldwide coverage. Now, since this, this uh, airplane in the disappearing act that it had, there's been a lot of changes. We are tracking our airplanes better, and it's, and it's getting better by the day. I mean, the, the new systems coming on these airplanes take it right away from the pilot, the reporting, and uh, make it automatic. So the airplane is reporting and making it so that the pilot can't uh, disable it. And, so and somebody's always watching at that point. I got it. Yeah. Amazing. We're talking I mean, to John yeah, Goldie. I'm sorry, go ahead, John. All right, we have the pings off the engine monitoring that most pilots didn't even know was on the airplane. And that's the, that's the only way we know for sure where this airplane went and the direction it was going. Amazing. So we, we have that for certain that it went in, in, the, in the general direction it was going. My thanks to John. And now, a view from 38,000 feet, the cockpit perspective, from pilot Patrick Smith, the author of Cockpit Confidential and AskThePilot.com. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, 
the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Let's get down and, and dirty here, Patrick. I mean, it's eight years later, and if you take a look at the history of airline accident investigations, I can't think of one other than Amelia Earhart that has remained unsolved for this long. I, I can't either, and it's, it's surprising, but it's also not surprising. Um, and I remember in the hours after the story broke that this plane was missing, you know, my, my reaction was, oh, the, give them a day and a half or so, they'll, they'll find it, they'll start, they'll start to find pieces, and then they'll find the wreckage, and you know, give it a couple of days. And, you know, my opinion changed on that pretty quickly. And, and it wasn't too long afterwards that I was saying to people, you know what? They are never going to find this plane. They're just never going to find it. And the reason being? Because when you look at you look at the, the size of an airplane compared to the vastness and the depth of the ocean, uh, it's 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 just easy for an airplane to dis to disappear like that. I know that sounds in this age far-fetched but in, in a lot of ways it's not and and i'm not surprised these years later that that they haven't eventually found it will they i, I don't know um it depends how hard they want to keep looking and at a certain point uh, you know the what they're going to find if, if and when they find it is it really going to matter is it going to tell them anything um Probably not. Well, let's let's back up for a second because you as a pilot know this. You know, there are parts of the world that you fly which are not regularly monitored. There's not a lot of air traffic control. You're flying over some dead areas, some dead zones in which, uh, you know, you're not even in any radio communication at certain points. So this may have been the case here. You know, we take a look at uh, Air France Flight 447 going between Brazil and, and Paris. They were flying over a dead zone. Um, and you know, there's a lot of part of the parts of the world that are not properly or fully charted or monitored, not to mention tracked. And uh, and yet this particular flight was going between Kuala Lumpur and Beijing. On a, if it was going on its regular route, it would have been heavily tracked because every every country there, their military tracks it. But this plane diverted. It veered off course and went into areas where nobody was looking. Well, what you just said is partly true, but maybe not to the extent that a lot of people think. I mean, airplanes are more or less in constant contact with either their company or an air traffic control facility or both, uh, regardless of where they are, uh, through uh, satellite data link and so on. Um, but if that equipment had been switched off, intentionally um you know now now the story changes and that airplane could have slipped into oblivion so to speak um by design um through somebody's nefarious planning and ended up wherever it ended up uh without being detected and that's that's not not totally surprising and that's one of the theories that was advanced that it was a pilot suicide it was carefully planned just like yeah, I mean, it, it it may have been, it may not have been. Um, it, it it could have been an accident of some kind. Um, it's, you know, a decompression. I, I I don't know. We shouldn't get into the the different scenarios because there are many possibilities. Well, you know what? Let's talk about let's the see. distinct possibilities is that this was an intentional act by a crew member and uh, and 
the plane was was disappeared. But you know what, Patrick? Let's talk about what we know that didn't happen. That might be a better way to get into it. Uh, I think you and I would agree that uh, the people who are on that plane are not marooned on some island waiting for their next episode of a television show. <laughs> well, even if they find the airplane, uh, the conspiracy theories aren't going to go away. Um, that's just the way it works nowadays, unfortunately. Um, but let's say they find the wreckage. Um and it's under 30,000 feet of water somewhere. I mean, the, the logistics of getting that wreckage to the surface and then analyzing it, and then is it going to tell us anything? Uh, the data recorder, the voice recorder, you know, none of that is going to be intact or, or useful. What are we really going to know other than where the airplane is, which is, you know, certainly would be, it, it would be helpful to know. It would be interesting to know, but I don't know if that is going to give us any answers beyond just, where the plane is. Yep, I think you may be right. And that's the interesting thing because they, they searched, you know, a huge grid and then a larger grid and then an even larger grid on the ocean at a place in the ocean where, the, as you say, the depth of the, of the water makes things almost impossible. When you look up at an airplane leaving a contrail, you know, that plane is 30 or so thousand feet away. Now imagine you're looking down at that little speck at the end of that contrail, but you're looking down through 30,000 feet of seawater. And now imagine that tiny speck of an airplane is broken into tens of thousands of pieces. I think I... I, I it helps uh, you understand why the plane is so hard to find. Patrick, I, I, you know, the symbolism that you just gave us about 30,000 feet looking down on a plane that may have been already disintegrated before it even hit the ocean gives us an idea of how probably impossible it is for anybody to have hope of finding it. But let's, let's just talk about what could have happened on the way down, because here's a plane that was flying level at 38,000 feet. It already got to that level. They were handed off to another air traffic controller, and the pilot said, good night. And that was the last transmission they got. And I'm going to presume, for the sake of our discussion, Discussion that the plane, wherever it was going, and whoever was in control or not in control, continued to fly at 38,000 feet until it ran out of fuel. And if you know, if you go back to the miracle on the Hudson with Captain Sullenberger, who ditched the plane in the Hudson River, he had full tanks of gas. He was in control of the plane. He could control the angle and and at least a little bit of the speed at which that plane hit the water. And he was lucky because the water was not rough and it wasn't iced up on that January day in 2009. This is a completely different situation because if a plane loses loses its fuel, runs out of fuel at 38,000 feet, it, start, it, it has no choice but to start to descend and, and go into a dive. And Every aeronautical expert that I've talked to tells me that from that height, it's going to achieve such a downward speed that it will probably take the plane beyond its aerodynamic limits, and the plane will start disintegrating and falling apart before it ever hit the ocean. Make sense? It does, and that's, that's likely true, if that's what happened. Uh, the plane was most likely in various pieces before it hit the ocean. And there, of course, means that your theory about not being able to find it has more credence simply because it's beyond finding a needle in a haystack. You can't even find the haystack. You know, even a controlled ditching, Stolenberger notwithstanding, a controlled ditching on the open ocean with you know, high seas, uh, waves and so forth, it's, it's very easy for an airplane to uh, catch a wingtip or otherwise be unstable such that it, it flips over upon impact with the water, breaks apart, um, you know, a, a kind of a soft 
landing on the ocean where the plane just kind of comes to a stop intact is possible, but it's uh, maybe more likely that even if the plane had been under control or some control, it would have uh, flipped and broken up. Exactly. And so now let's talk about where we are now, eight years later. Uh, When you're flying your planes back to the United States, I'm assuming that the tracking technology has improved since 2014, that it's not just the electronic transmission from different performance systems on the plane, it's also radio and it's also other kinds of telemetry, right? It's it's changed and become somewhat more sophisticated, not because of the incident, not because of the incident, but because these changes were in the works anyway. Um, you know, satellite data link, uh, something that pilots call CPDLC, is much more common now than it was through this technology. Pilots are in contact with air traffic control and with the company operations pretty much throughout the duration of the flight, regardless of where you are. Uh, above and beyond that, you have you know uh, uh, HF radio, uh, VHF radio, where where it's uh, where you're closer to land and so forth. I mean, there are different ways of staying in touch. The idea that there are long stretches of flights over the ocean where you're on your own and nobody knows where you are and it's impossible to talk to anybody. That, that's really not true. It, it, it wasn't true in 2014 either. Which even heightens the mystery because if they could have communicated, why didn't they? Right, which brings us back to was this intentional? Um, the easiest way to make the plane disappear would have been to, to switch all of that technology off uh, duck down below any radar coverage and, and off you go to wherever uh, wherever they ended up. And, you know, they have found pieces of the plane, a lot of people. That's right. They're on, on, on Reunion Island. Yeah, Reunion Island, yeah. So we know the plane is somewhere down in the Indian Ocean, in, in the southern part of the Indian Ocean, but where exactly? The question that always has, has astounded me is, if you're going to turn your transponder off and you're going to turn your radio off, you either either suffered a massive electric failure in which all the systems are gone, or you yourself have made the conscious decision to turn those two transmission items off, right? Yes, uh, either of those scenarios is possible. Personally, I I uh, lean towards the idea that this was intentional, um, because for an electrical failure, a fire, some other onboard malfunction to render everything inoperative and render the plane as invisible as it became uh, would have been not impossible, but, but difficult. My thanks to Patrick. Then, want a great read? Then check out David Soucy's book on MH370. It's called, appropriately, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, Why It Disappeared and Why It's Only a Matter of Time Before This Happens Again. Hey, David, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Peter. So let's let's recap. You know, there are so many crazy conspiracy theories that have that have launched over the last eight years. Most of which can be easily debunked. I won't bore you with them, um, but you know, suffice to say, nobody's you know hanging out on an island and and uh, you know living the life of a Robinson Crusoe. Uh, we we can rule that one out. Uh, but so. you know, in any accident investigation, something I know you know backwards and forwards. You've got to rule everything out before you can rule any one thing in. That's the first thing you have to do. And then you also realize that, at least if history is any indication, no plane ever crashes for any one reason. It's a combination of reasons that, in that combination, create a situation from which you can't recover. 
That's about what we know historically. But then beyond that, why don't you enlighten me, if you can, as to your investigation, as to, you know, a timeline, if you will, uh, because the investigators don't have a lot to work with here. No, there really isn't, Peter. Um, in my investigations over the years, I've developed an algorithm that I use, and typically we have about 2,500 data points or verifiable facts about an accident. In this case, okay, you most get, can I you give come me, up with. Can you give me an example of, of another case where you could apply those that we know of? Well, Flight 800, for example, that we had witnesses saying that they saw it shot down. We're talking, we about, TW, it, yeah, uh, we're talking about TWA Flight 800 it, in July of, of 1996. Correct. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. yeah. So, so with that one, we had, I mean, credible witnesses that said, yeah, this happened. It definitely happened. We saw a missile go up towards it and intercept with the aircraft. And then later on, we found out that we, we were able to use this uh, algorithm to debunk some of those, those things. Uh, we're not saying that those people don't really believe that they saw that because they do. It's as real as the day is long for them to see this and, and to recount it. But that doesn't mean that it actually happened. And so part of this algorithm uses any other verifiable facts that we have. And we put a ranking on them. We have various experts from various backgrounds put a rank on whether it's one to five. Does this particular fact that we're talking about, that there was a missile that went up and hit that aircraft, did it actually happen or did it not? And so you use all of the other, in that case, there was at least 2,800 different verifiable facts that counteracted that. So, so those are the kinds of things that we use the algorithm to determine. Yeah. You know, David, in, in that investigation, I, and I remember those eyewitnesses, I talked to many of them, um, what I think they thought they saw, which is the missile hitting the plane, was actually fuel streaming from the plane after they heard the explosion. Because it's a question of what, you know, what travels faster, light or sound. And, uh, Correct. And they, very few people were like, had their eyes transfixed in the sky. They heard something first. And then they may have looked up. And, exactly. And, that, I mean, and, and in that sequence, I can understand why they thought they saw something when, in fact, it, it didn't happen in that sequence. Exactly. I mean, light travels 10,000 times faster than sound or, or more, actually. Uh, so which arrives at your brain first is, is going to be the sight. And then later you'll try to figure out the sound and try to process it. And it can get very much out of sequence. All right. So going back to your algorithms, and you had 2,800 identifiable aspects here. How many did you have to work with on Malaysia Flight 370? 230, Oops. and that was pushing it. We Oops. actually had to invent some. <laughs> wow. So of the Not two, very many. No. So of the 230, did that lead you in any credible direction? It didn't at first. It, well, it led me into two specific directions. One is something nefarious, and then the other would be uh, a mechanical failure or a fire on board were the two most credible uh, possibilities. But throughout time and as we found more parts of the aircraft that have flowed up, that have shown up along the Madagascar and the Le Reunion Island and a few places like that, we were able to make some better conclusions. So now we're up to about 280 verifiable facts that we can now use into the plug into the algorithm. Yeah, I'm one of those people, and once again, I'm, I'm not saying I totally believe this, but I haven't been able <coughs> excuse me, to discount it. And that is the idea of, as you suggested, an onboard fire that may have led to a decompression that may have completely disabled the pilots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that's my most uh, prevalent theory right now, especially after adding the additional items that we have about, what, about how the flight controls came off of the aircraft. Um, uh, looking at those pieces, you can tell clearly that these, 
flight, various flight control services that we have came off in flight. They did not come off from impact to the ground or to the, uh, to the ocean, either one. Yeah. Well, so, I, you know, I, I go back to the, um, to the miracle on the Hudson flight with, with Sullenberger where he was in mm-hmm. control of the plane until it hit the water and he had a full, and he had full tanks of fuel, which allowed the plane to float and he didn't lose critical parts of the plane upon impact with the water. It was a remarkable day in January of 2009. Um, that it was. But if you go back to that, and you take a look at the speed at which he hit, it was a reasonable speed, uh, maybe 140 knots, maybe 130. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're at 38,000 feet, and the plane loses, loses all its fuel, and it's now starting a dive, then it goes back to your theory that, that it's going to, t- it's going to uh, accelerate at such a speed in that dive that it goes beyond its aerodynamic limits and the plane literally starts uh, ripping itself apart. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I would even say that it's beyond theory at this point because it is a proven fact based on the, uh, the way that it was dislodged from the aircraft. So I, I would go past theory on that because of the fact that we know what happened there. And we know that it exceeded, it went into uh, uh, transitional speed of sound. So basically the, the air over the wing had to have been going faster than the speed of sound yet the airplane was under the speed of sound, and that creates a flutter in these flight control surfaces that, that causes the, the flight controls to come off of the aircraft. We're talking with David Susi, the author of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, why it disappeared and why it's only a matter of time before this happens again. And I might add, David, that if we take that sequence of events that you just described, then at the point that the parts of that plane hit the water, they sink right away. There's no floating. Uh, well, there is a bit. Uh, there's some things that will float no matter how parceled out they are. The question then I have to ask you is why is it only a matter of time before this happens again, David? Well, what we have to think about is what I'm saying about what's going to happen again. What we don't know will happen again is whatever caused the aircraft to fail or to crash. Well, that we can't know about. What we can know about is why it disappeared. So what I'm saying there in the title is that it's a matter of time before another airplane disappears. And that is a probability. It still is today. There's been a lot of things to improve that. But it comes down to a decision that was made by by Malaysia Airlines at the time, which was the flight following or the flight tracking. That airplane had the equipment on board that was perfectly capable of maintaining location on that aircraft every minute of every every hour of that flight to say exactly where that aircraft was, but they would have had to pay extra money for that to, to be able to do that. So instead they, they think, well, this will never happen to me. We'll never lose this aircraft. It's a big airplane. It's too big to fail, you know? And so we'll be able to find it even if it does. But if something failed, we, we have like 30, 20, 30 minutes between each one of these pings, if you will, to say, here's where the airplane is. So in that case, what we have learned is that most airlines since that point has started increasing the price just a little bit, which comes out in my calculations to about $2.30 per seat to be able to track yourself and know exactly where you are in that airplane at least once a minute. So I think that's worth it for me. If I was going to be flying out in those vast regions of ocean, I would pay an extra $2.30 to make sure that someone could find me if something went wrong with the airplane. You know, if you take a look at the map, and I encourage my audience to do that every chance I get because we take so much for granted. Look at the Indian Ocean. That's big, and it's deep. And if you're flying at 560 knots, and you're checking on the plane only once every 30 minutes, 
Do you know how much land mass or water mass you're going to have to search under to try to find it? If you're checking it once every minute, then you narrow it down to maybe 60 or 70 miles. But in this situation, do you think they even even got close to it, David? No. I, well, I have to take off on that because I really believe in the technology that they used. If you're familiar with the thing called Doppler radar, what that yeah. is, if you've ever listened to a train come at you and you hear how it changes from meow, it changes speed, it changes pitch. And that's not actually a change in the frequency. It's a change in the distance to your ear. And so Doppler is a way to measure distance and it, it can be used in radio transmissions as well. And that's what was used here is the, there was one radio transmission that was still coming from this airplane. It was in the tail of the airplane and it was transmitting, but there was no data with it. It just was transmitting to satellites. So uh, a bunch of people that are a lot smarter than me have figured out how to make an arc, if you will, to say, here's about where that airplane was based on the, the, the pings that it was receiving from that, from that transmission and how far away they are. So were they in the right area? I think most definitely they were in the right area. Uh, whether they could find it or not, you'd have to be out in that ocean uh, to, to actually understand the scope of what we're looking for here. That airplane looks huge when you're standing next to it, but when you're looking at it from you know five miles above it on the top of the ocean, uh, you have no idea how small that thing can become. Yep, you put that in correct visual perspective, and and, and it's 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 daunting actually when you think of the of the search patterns that are going to be required, assuming they ever resume the search to try to find this. Not to mention the depth of the water that they're operating in. Yeah, I, I don't think that anyone the technology has been exhausted to to come up with anything viable. I think what we would have to wait for is another level of technology. And as you know, technology goes in, in plateaus and we just reached the top of one plateau. And it, I think it'll be at least 10 years before the technology improves again to be able to see through the water. Uh, and I think there are some people that are working on that. So once that happens, I think thing, searches will resume and there still are, you know, 10 or $20 million worth of rewards if they do find it out there. So someone's going to figure out how to find it eventually. You know, thinking of technology, I was just amazed at the technology that they used to find Shackleton's ship, you know, with (laughs) with marine drone technology, a ship that has been missing for, you know, a century. Yeah. So they can, if they can do that and using deep sea submersibles and some other in, and some other technology in terms of, of, of enhanced sonar and, as you say, Doppler, maybe they will find it. But, but i got to ask this question then, David. Let's assume for the sake of our discussion that we get really lucky, we're able to narrow the search patterns, we keep getting narrow and narrow and narrow, and finally we, we come up with a signature on our screen, it looks like it could be that, it looks like they discovered the Titanic, we send the deep-sea submersible down, and it's going to have to go way down, and it mm-hmm. finds some parts of the plane, because I think you and I would agree that it's highly unlikely that you have an intact fuselage um, down there. And then, I'd agree. And then, now they found it, uh, there'll be the search, of course, for the black boxes, meaning the one in the cockpit, the CVR, and then the, the flight data recorder that was normally in the tail. Let's even mm-hmm. assume for the sake of our discussion, they find both of those at that depth. Do you actually think that those will be in a condition to, to give us any information that will be helpful if they're operating at all. And yeah, you do go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go right ahead. Well, I was going to say, yes, they would be, uh, you'd be amazed what information gets stored on those boxes that we're able to recover on accidents that you thought it would be impossible to do. 
but uh, it, these are they're called EEPROM chips. So basically, it's either it's a switch, it's either on or off, just like your computer is. And when they're turned on or off, they stay there and they can't be changed. It's it's a permanent memory, and uh, it, it's on there. And it, trying to get it off of there, even you could pass a magnet over it, it wouldn't change it at all. But you'd have well, if you had a strong enough magnet, I suppose it would reset everything. But because of the way it's built, it really would retain that. Uh, pretty much indefinitely, and, and it's protected from salt water. The only way that it would, it's even salt water would affect it is if it was injected directly into the container that contains these EEPROM chips. Got it. So, and those are encased in a large amount of of uh, isolating uh, plastic that, that that really is pretty impermeable. Now, the other theory, of course, is that it was not an electrical fire resulting in decompression and loss of control, but it was a suicide. And a a well-orchestrated suicide, uh, much like the one that we saw in Europe with the the European carrier in the Alps, Mm -hmm. uh, where you had a controlled descent into into terrain with nobody able to stop it because the co-pilot was locked out of the door, or the pilot was locked out of the door. You're Uh, talking about German wings. German wings, right, and and couldn't get in. Um, But that's still a viable theory, at least in theory, right? You know, it's worth investigating, and I did in the book, and we, we looked, put, ran that across the algorithm. There were a few factors that made it highly improbable, and one of them is there's actually been two of those type of events that have occurred in history, and uh, both of those involved removing the second pilot from the cockpit, waiting until that second pilot left the cockpit, and then the other pilot locked the door and then was able to commit the suicide act at that point. It's a murder act at that point to me. It goes beyond suicide. Um, but so in both cases, there was a period of time, the highly probable time to do that is to do that prior to landing or when there's nothing, no activity going on in the cockpit. If the pilot, let's say that the pilot wanted to get that other pilot out of the cockpit. So let's presume that that's what the case is. The probability that both pilots were in on that is, uh, you know, very improbable. <laughs> so, so let's just presume that that had to happen. The point at which this aircraft went offline and changed direction is not the time at which the pilot, the other pilot would have felt comfortable leaving the cockpit because at that time they were just changing over from one air traffic control center to the other. That's the busiest time that they're going to have en route. And so if you, if the other pilot said, Hey, um, why don't you go to the bathroom right now? Why don't you take your lunch? Why don't you do whatever and get him to leave the cockpit would have been highly suspect. And so I don't think that that happened. I don't think that that other pilot was asked to leave the cockpit. And in fact, just prior to it losing contact, you could see hear both of the pilots talking on the on the communications, and there was no activity. There was nothing going on there. They were just starting to do that transition. So I do not think that one of the pilots left the cockpit. So therefore, I think it's highly improbable that that it was a suicide act. My thanks to David. Now I introduce you to someone who followed this story from day one. She's Hong Kong-based journalist Florence de Changi. And her new book, The Disappearing Act, goes deeply into the unsubstantiated theories and a few red herrings as she tries to solve perhaps the biggest aviation mystery of all time. How are you, Paul? Hello, Peter. I'm fine. Thanks. So, you know, what's amazing to me, and you, and you did such great research on this book, trying to figure out the minute-by-minute play-by-play of the uh, of the cockpit crew's final minutes before they got on the plane, the family history, you know, in any 
accident investigation, and I've, I've said this throughout the show, you know, investigators have to painstakingly rule everything out before they can rule any one thing in. And normally, in a, in a traditional, typical accident investigation, it doesn't take them that long to rule the crazy stuff out, and not that long once they know some of the evidence, because they usually recover the key evidence, to be able to rule something in, and then from there to determine a probable cause, and then hopefully from there to make urgent safety recommendations so that that particular accident could never be repeated. But we don't have that in this case. We don't. We just have theories, but we have no physical evidence other than part of a of a wing assembly that that washed up on Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean a couple of years after the crash. So, so uh, your work had to be quite challenging because you didn't have that much to go on when you got in this, did you? Yeah, exactly. And I started a bit the way you you said. I started by paying attention to all the theories that were. Uh, put out there because you always say you know there is no um, no smoke without a fire and I dismissed step by step most of them but I must say that I must say that in in quite a few of them I found clues because they're never completely silly and they're sometimes not true but they give you ideas of what could have happened because they are they're inspired on other scenarios etc but eventually when I saw that none of the alternative uh, stories that were put out there to explain uh, this uh, mysterious case. And and just on this one, you said it was the biggest mystery, etc. That's something that I've decided not to accept from the very beginning. You know, uh, when people say that this story is uh, incredible, I say it is simply not credible. Don't say it's a mystery because a B777 does not simply disappear because 239 bodies do not simply disappear uh, without a trace, you know, even in the middle of the ocean, etc. But to finish on the first point, after I, I looked at all these different theories which were out there, you know, Diego Garcia, the mangustine in the cargo, the fire, the, the lithium batteries, uh, you name it, uh, the, the organ trafficking. Well, but wait, but wait, 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 stop, stop. Let's go back and talk about that. You know, there was one that the plane landed at, at a top secret military base at Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. One was that it landed and ditched near a deserted island and they were all living there. One was that, right? Then, you, of course, you had the the usual suspect of a, of a lithium-ion battery fire, which we've had certainly a number of those happen in the last couple of years. Absolutely. What was, what was the cargo it was carrying? Was there something in the cargo that will lead us to determining what happened to the plane? Was it pilot suicide? Was there something going on with he and his wife? You know, all those things, right? Exactly. All of these. And I, and uh, and so looking at all of these and the main one is uh, the pilot, because now in the stories that keep being repeated and in whatever scenario that is being promoted, including uh, the one I call the official narrative, which is the one that people believe they know. And now they've got so used to it that they think they believe it. Okay, what is the what, what is the one they believe they think they know? I think the one which is generally accepted as what I call the official narrative, and that's what most government, I mean all governments involved in this matter, uh, recognize as the truth, is the fact that after like about forty minutes, uh, basically after the the goodbye, uh, the plane turned. It made an incredible U-turn, and it kind of went back on its track. Uh, flew over Malaysia again, and then went up a little bit in the 
Strait of Malacca, which is between um, Malaysia and uh, Indonesia. I mean, Thailand and, and Malaysia on one side, um, Indonesia on the other side. And then at the top of Sumatra, it did another enormous turn and, in, and it went supposedly due south and it eventually crashed at 819 uh, in the morning, uh, some 2000 kilometers off the coast of uh, Western Australia. So this is what is called the official narrative. And this is what I first worked for years to try and find a shred of evidence. Has anyone seen this plane during these almost eight hours of flight? Yes, part of it was during the night. Okay, but during the night, you have all kinds of tools. You have your radars, you have your satellites, you have even many other tools that the public is not aware, which would obviously trace a massive plane like a B777, which has crossed like seven um, countries' radar, um, uh, you know, um, zones, basically. And, and yet we have strictly nothing. And once it crashed there, it should have done millions of debris right on the surface it should have created uh, a, a big crash which even the magnitude of that crash could have been picked by some of the installation that we have there to uh, identify um, uh, nuclear testing or whatever instead we have strictly nothing and after that when they do what they what the australians call the most incredible ever uh, with the best of mankind and with all these uh, big words that have been used by the Australian Prime Minister, they found nothing again. And and when they finally put their submarines, I mean, the, the you know, the little machines that go, it's called... Um, the deep sea submersible, yeah. Exactly. And, and, and still they find nothing. But there is a big circus. They make us believe for a while that they've heard pings, but uh, I'm sorry, these pings were the one of the engines or sometimes the one of the turtle or the one of the shark. I mean, it, it was a massive circus. And that's when I understood that finally, I mean, it took me years to understand that, but basically, and that's why the disappearing act is uh, a relevant title, because when you have a disappearance, you need a diversion. And the Australian search, in my opinion, based on all the, 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 the clues I put, is the act of diversion. We know that they found nothing except for that one flapper piece on the, that washed up on the beach in uh, Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean, but that was much, much, much later. Uh, we've seen what happens when planes uh, crash. There are horrendous scenes. Uh, they're horrific. Uh, the debris is spread out over a wide debris field, whether it's in the water, like TWA Flight 800, or on, on ground, which is like Lockerbie, Pan Am 103. Uh, but this might be different because if this plane flew on at 38,000 feet until it ran out of fuel, uh, when, it when it started diving, because it lost power, uh, when it started diving, it exceeded its aerodynamic limits and probably broke apart in the air. So... You know, it, here's here's the one thing I'll, I'll share with you, which I'm I'm sure you'll appreciate. When we when we did the story of uh, the miracle on the Hudson, Captain Sullenberger landing that A320 on the Hudson River back in 2009, the thing that was amazing about that was all the gods aligned for him to be able to clear a bridge, put it in the middle of a river where he had 20/20 visibility and no traffic on the river and no wind on the river. And because he had full tanks of gas, his plane floated. 
It was the most amazing story and the most amazing and quick recovery. But remember, his plane became sort of buoyant because oil is lighter than water, and that's what kept him afloat. In the case of Malaysian Flight 370, there was no fuel left. And when that plane hit the water, whether it was intact or not, I tend to think it wasn't, it basically broke apart and sank like a rock because there was nothing to keep it afloat. It was like a piece of metal on the water. It doesn't float. Um, yeah, well, actually, there is an interesting um, comparison that you could do, uh, which is AF-447, because uh, yes. in June 2009, you have AF-447 falling like a stone, just like you said, and actually incredibly, uh, because it, it, it kind of fell flat. and it, it was a flat stall. It was a flat stall. And it actually exploded on the surface. So it was a massive shock again. Now, number one despite this enormous shock, because it also fell from all its height, uh, there were several fields of debris on the surface. It took them like a few days, five days to find the first one, but they found quite a few debris first. On 447, on 447, yes. Yes, on 447, uh, and, and about 50 debris, and it took them two years to finally identify the field of debris, which was like four or 5,000 meters deep and everything was pretty concentrated despite the very um, big depths that all these debris fell despite the current etc it was kind of concentrated at the bottom of the ocean but you know there's 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 one thing also that those two planes had in common those two particular flights they were both flying flight paths over what we would normally call dead zones where there was no real radar coverage there was no real communication. It wasn't a heavily trafficked sky path, whether you're going from Brazil to Paris or whether you're going from KL to Beijing. This is water, you know, and, and, and there's not a lot of traffic out there either. Uh, I, I would um, I would disagree a little bit on uh, the case of MH370 because when you cross between uh, Malaysia and Vietnam, even at night, and, and you can see it on, on flight radar, there are actually quite uh, uh, a lot of planes and the distance are much smaller as well. So um, the route, and actually the, the, the air traffic controller could call on other uh, flights which were around at the time and ask them to establish contact with MH370. And one of them did uh, partly, and then uh, the conversation was gargled, garbled and, and he could not properly understand what uh, what was said. There is one point I would I would like to um, make, because you mentioned the flapron uh, that was found on the reunion, uh, Peter, and this is very, very important, because when they finally found a piece of debris, 16 months later, and like 4,000 kilometers away from the supposed crash uh, spot, uh, so that's already two very big problems. Yeah. Uh, how, how, how do you have a piece, you know, like that floating for 500 days and swimming uh, for 4,000 kilometers in one of the roughest ocean of the planet, etc. So in itself, its appearance was another miracle in that story. But when you look at it, it has one major, major, major float that people are not aware of is that it did not have an identification plate. It was not there. And I've seen the official documents. The first things the 
investigators noted, and they take the picture and they write under the picture, we observe the lack of identification plate. Never would a normal a plane part lose its identification plate. The only instance you do is when a plane is dismantled. So if you find a piece of debris on the beach which has lost its identification plate, the first thing you should think is that it belongs to a dismantled plane. Now, the next thing is that despite the two years investigation that the French have done on uh, this piece, if you leave the report, it really makes you think that, as you could think from the first second, it is not part of MH370. So I want to say that. And so I won't even mention the flurry of debris that have been found afterwards by always the same very Romanesque uh, person, an American guy actually who loves to chase for debris. But when you look at the, when you know that the first most important and most researched and documented piece is not credible, you don't even pay attention to the other ones. I hear you. So basically, we're right back where we started from, right? No one knows. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. But you know what? We looked at, you know, it took us, what, two to three years to look at Air France 447. It took us at least two years to figure out Swiss Air 111. Uh, there's still people trying to figure out what happened on Egypt Air Flight 990. Uh, but most of those uh, those incidents, you do come up with consensus you do come up with a probable cause, and hopefully you come up with lessons that can not only be learned but applied. But, you know, the, the two big miss, missing flights that I now know about, one of which was before my time, and one of which, of course, I lived through, which is MH370, was Amelia Earhart, and, of course, the, uh, and then, of course, MH370. And we may never know, right? We may never know what happened. No, I think uh, I'm very confident, actually, that we will know because uh, there are too many clues. Uh, number one, it will be, I, I think uh, in my book, it is already established beyond doubt that the official narrative is a fabrication. So if you, if you are convinced, and it's convinced on base of established uh, on missing documents, on the fact that there is nothing to prove something. You can't just claim that the plane did all this extravagant route and eventually crashed. If there is nothing, no radar from any country, no radar images from any ship which would have seen, no statement, no witness, I mean, you name it. And, and then no tangible evidence, as I said. So you people need to be to understand and to wake up to the fact that what has been told, the official narrative, is a fabrication. So that's the first step. Then everyone can work harder on finding the actual truth. And I think I've come 80 to 90% close to the final scenario. I think I've, I've established a place of the crash, which is northeast of Vietnam, a time of the crash, which is around 2.30 or 2.40, and there is a cluster of very convincing truth. Myself, when I look at them, I don't believe them because it is so obvious. And most of it, I mean, at least I would say half of the evidence, you won't believe, I mean, you know, because you read the book, but it's basically in the official report. So when you read in the official report that there is the location of the plane at 228, that at some point the traffic controller from Vietnam is telling his counterpart the plane is landing. I mean, all of this is there, and this is official 
public data. And I, I can't believe that they managed to come up with an official narrative which contradicts the most official uh, information that has been publicly made available. It's just that no one reads these documents. My thanks to Florence, to David Soucy, to Patrick Smith, to John Golia, and to Christine Negroni. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, just log on to petergreenberg.com. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.